You're listening to The Details, a podcast from Mr. Porter about the little things that matter in men's style. In the course of this series, we'll be travelling around the globe to delve deep into buttons, zips, collars, labels, stitching, pleats and darts. We'll talk to world-famous designers about the secret subtleties that are hidden in the fastenings of their coats and the seams of their trousers. And we'll be getting up close and personal with collectors, craftspeople and enthusiasts, unveiling the meaning and emotion packed into even the tiniest elements of modern menswear. It's Saturday morning and I'm out at breakfast at Italo in Bonington Square, a tiny deli that almost feels like it was purpose-built for the beautiful Victorian terraces that surround it. Um, hi. Hi. Are you doing the, the, the sausage and beans today? Yeah. The, yeah. Oh, could I have one of those in a decaf Americano, please? They have their own spin on the full English, a fried egg, a Tuscan sausage, stewed borlotti beans. It's not bad at all. Do you know where you're sitting, Adam? Uh, outside, thanks. Adam, outside one... It's really cold. The one problem, though, with this whole setup in the British winter is that most of the tables are outside on the square, which is great for people watching and soaking up that special South London atmosphere. But it also means that this is the sort of brunch you eat while wearing a scarf and a hat and a giant coat, like the one I'm wearing now. This is my favourite coat. It's by the Italian designer Massimo Piombo, And it's my favourite because it's oversized and heavy and made in a very thick, double-faced Czech tweed. When you put it on, it feels like someone is giving you a big hug or like you've wrapped yourself in a blanket. And, like all coats, it fastens at the front. So if it's cold, like today, you can do it up and cocoon yourself away from the world. The difficulty, of course, is trying to do it with gloves on, but I've had lots of practice at this kind of thing. In fact, learning how to do up a coat or jacket is one of the earliest ways in which we interact with our clothing, the first time we get real, hands-on experience with fabric and fixings. Perhaps that's why there's such a tactile pleasure to the whole experience, even as an adult, or why you sometimes see people fiddling with the closure of their blazers when they're making a speech or doing something else nerve-wracking. But perhaps it's also because of what you do a coat up with, Objects of ancient design that come in mesmerising shades and textures. Small discs of wood or nut or horn or bone that people don't just use every day, but in some cases collect and cherish and obsess about. I'm Adam Welsh, a writer and Mr Porter contributing editor. Today, once I've finished this sausage, we're going to talk about buttons. So how was that? It was delicious. It was very nice. Buttons first appear in about 2500 BC as ornaments or seals. Oddly enough, the button doesn't do what it seemingly was meant to do until about the 13th century, when German dressmakers married it with its counterpart, the buttonhole. A match made in heaven, 
the functional button took off across Europe as close-fitting garments became fashionable. Unlike modern buttons, which have two or four holes for attaching them to a garment, historically, most buttons were mounted onto a shank, allowing the surface of the button to remain plain, ready for it to be polished, painted, decorated or carved. Buttons have been made from almost every material imaginable and include ivory, metal, glass, linen, lead, enamel, rubber, wood, horn, bone, leather, pressed cardboard, mother of pearl, celluloid, porcelain, composition, tin, zinc, stone and paper mache. In the UK, a characteristic button was the Dorset button, made by repeatedly binding yarn over a disc or ring. Their manufacture was at its peak between the 16th and late 18th century, but with the arrival of the industrial era, they were overtaken by machine-made buttons from factories in the developing industries of Birmingham and other growing cities. Nowadays, once-forgotten craft buttons like the Dorset button are enjoying a revival, with hundreds of tutorials online that guide enthusiasts and professionals alike on how to make and perfect their intricate designs. That was Andrew Groves, Professor of Fashion at London's University of Westminster, explaining one of the most fun things about buttons, that there are so many different types. So many, that it's very tempting to collect them. I've certainly got a fair few kicking around in my bedside drawer, because, after all, you never know when there's going to be a button emergency. But for this episode, I wanted to rummage through someone else's stash. But look at these, are the little metal things to sew through. So I went to visit the impeccably tasteful British fashion designer Margaret Howell in her studio in London. This is quite fun as well. There's a, a button card that just says the latest fashion at the top. <laughs> and then they're kind of arranged on this card in a slightly abstract expressionist or swoop uh, to give this sort of pleasing shape. In 2020, Margaret celebrated the 50th anniversary of her eponymous brand, which is known for providing carefully designed, yet effortlessly simple clothing that, in its quiet refinement and studied quality, seems designed to last forever. This is wonderful, because it tells you exactly what they are at the top. It says, fancy buttons. <laughs> they don't look They're very fancy. So what we would call brace buttons, you know how you have buttons on the waistband of men's trousers that are dented, or fly buttons? They're called brace buttons because of the braces attaching. Suppose buttons, in terms of, you know, as a child, they're something that you find quite difficult and take a while, you know, that you focus on and to work out to do them yourself. So exactly. I was in tears <laughs> after my first day at primary school because I couldn't do my coat buttons up properly. No, I remember that. Yeah, Thinking that's, back that's to That's enough to put you off a button. Yes, I wanted to talk to Margaret about buttons because I've always seen her as an incredibly detail-focused designer. Her clothes are almost disarmingly simple, with no embellishment beyond what's necessary, and colours that veer towards the neutral and natural. In her menswear, she often revisits archetypal garments, like the parka or donkey jacket, refining them gently with intuitive improvements in fabric, fit and finishing. In this kind of work, the details really matter, and when they are well chosen, 
as Margaret's buttons and fixings invariably are. They really shine. Well, I'm Margaret Howell and I design clothes for men and women. In my um, early shirts, there were quite a few little details, pockets and various things. Over the years, the shirts have become more minimal in a way. It was really, though, inspired by this vintage shirt I found in a jumble sale. It was just such a lovely fine pinstripe and soft fabric, beautifully made. And I thought, yes, I want to make a shirt like this. And then I drew on that and and shaped it the way I wanted it. And I had this feeling of sort of the beautiful fabric, but not a smart shirt, a soft shirt, soft interlining. I wanted pearl buttons, of course, four hold, because I like cross-stitch. And there are quite a few designs that were inspired by a button. So you said about choosing the pearl buttons, of course. Could you explain why that was an of course? They're not just a flat, man-made piece of material that just is flat in colour. They have life. They're varied because of their natural material. Do you collect buttons? I ask because I've read various stories about some of the other things you collect, like pebbles on the beach or, you know, lovely um, pottery and handicrafts. Do you have a nice box full of different shapes and styles somewhere that you rummage through when you're designing? I certainly do. (laughs) (laughs) My mother used to have a box of buttons. I just always remember rummaging. In fact, I think I've inherited part of her box of buttons because there's some very old decorative buttons in my box and then I can't resist those cards of buttons you get that are all in little rows and they're beautiful buttons yes I suppose it probably sounds strange to younger generations that one has a button box but of course in those days we had to darn socks and re-sew buttons on when they fell off and all that sort of thing, and make our own clothes. So we naturally sort of gathered up a button box. Are you quite kind of conservative with the types of materials you would use for buttons? You kind of like know what you like and revisit that? The favourites are, you know, Crozo is a nut and horn, pearl, bone. Sometimes the only sort of old ones were, were linen that you actually sew through. They had a metal rim inside. And I love those overall buttons with the metal shank. Toggles for duffel coats. I mean, it's funny seeing all the things on on the rack that you've brought out here and what a kind of eye-popping range of buttons there actually are. The corduroy jacket has got domed leather buttons. It's sort of a sort of knotted leather texture on the surface, which... It's plaited. In Mm. fact, you know, these are fairly modern ones, Mm -hmm. you know, that we've got here. I think you can see the difference. Mm -hmm. Yes, leather shank as well. So they have to be sewn by hand. Actually, this is from our archive, very early. And I used to sort of see the geography schoolmaster in his worn corduroy jacket and leather patches. So that's how this one came about. They look terribly small now, these. I would use bigger ones now. But they went with that, you know, and that's the only thing I could put with that, really. 
do you think a button like this has character? Is there a kind of story here in this button? And actually, you're completely right. You look at this and you're like, yes, that, that is a geography teacher's jacket. Yeah, I think what was interesting, though, was when I looked at this jacket and the button suddenly appeared so small to me is because it's the same with the shirts. As you go through time, you have to keep an eye on the collars, the cuffs, the plackets to do with proportion because... The clothes themselves get slightly bigger or smaller depending on that feel of the moment or the time. And now we're using a larger pearl button on the shirts than the small ones. And all the proportions have come slightly wider. You just keep an eye on the detail all the time. I definitely think, certainly with the pieces of yours that, that I own and wear, there's a sort of sensory memory of them because the buttons are quite large. Is that something that is sort of intentional? I always feel that there's a kind of substantiality to your pieces and part of that is in the process of, of fastening, you know, a slightly larger than average button or I've got a pair of trousers that have got three or four buttons on, I think they're quite sturdily done up. These are things that people probably don't consciously notice, but if they really thought about it, they do, or just sometimes they might. And that was something actually that really surprised me when I started with men's clothes and how men would come up and say how they loved the feel of this and the inside of this, and they really talked about it a lot. And I was unaware that they would notice, but it is nice that people do. This is a trench coat in a um, light brown Harris tweed, uh, checked, with large and rimmed horn buttons. This is a, a different school of button, mm. equally large, but uh, that's quite interesting. They're also quite an unusual detail on a jacket to have these very, very large... What, what are they made of? Are they nut buttons or horn? No, these are horn. Yeah. These have slight... I would say they've probably dried out a little, you know. I think they would have looked richer than that when I put them on. You're saying that the, the pattern is less than no. desirable? Or do you, or do you, no. do you like the it's, way that they've aged? Yes, yes. I mean, with handling, mm. your hands, your natural sort of skin will actually polish them up. Mm -hmm. It's just that it's not sat for how many years? I like that idea of the buttons that, you know, like anything that has been used and loved that kind of bear the witness of your, of your touch yes. and your hands wearing yes, it down. As you can see, a button's been replaced here and it's different. Oh dear, how do you feel about that? No, I'm going to try and find one of these <laughs> yeah. in my button box. What's so special about Margaret Howell's clothes and their buttons in particular is how closely they bring together the considerations of form and function. In her studio, it struck me that there is nothing more reassuring when it comes to design as seeing a piece that, though still in good condition, has been worn and worn again, and in its wear and tear developed its own story. Having said that, buttons haven't always been, let's say, strictly about practicality. Here's Andrew Groves to explain. You can tell whether a shirt belongs to a man or a woman, not only because of its size and style, but also because men's garments traditionally have buttons on the right side, while women's garments traditionally have the buttons on the left. Whilst it's unclear why the buttoning of garments became gendered, 
two theories persist as to the origin of this tradition. One is that having buttons on the right intended to ensure that men were able to draw their sword or gun from out of their jacket with the right hand. Another theory suggests that wealthy women were dressed by their maids, who found it easier to button their ladies' garments with the buttons on the left. As buttons became more about making a statement and less about simple function, button makers around the world started using techniques ranging from jewelry making, ceramics, sculpture, painting, printmaking, metalwork, and weaving to construct and embellish them. Mandarin buttons, or frogs, are an ornamental fastening made of intricately knotted string. Closed with loops, they provide a decorative closure on traditional Asian garments. But frogs and frogging also became an important feature on military uniforms across Europe between the 17th and 19th centuries, and by the late 19th century had also been adopted for lower-grade uniforms such as postmen, telegraph boys and hotel pages. In Japan, where men and women traditionally wore robes called kosode and kimono that used only material fastenings to keep them closed, buttons were less commonplace. Because these garments also don't feature pockets, charming button-like toggles called nisuki were used as fastenings on small woven baskets which were used to store personal belongings such as pipes, tobacco, money, seals or medicines. Today these buttons are highly collectible on account of their intricately carved designs which often reflect important aspects of Japanese folklore and life. It's odd to think that Japan used to do without buttons, because when I think of Japanese fashion today, I think of precisely this kind of thing. A focus on perfecting every aspect of a garment, making sure every element of its fabric, constructions and fixing are done exactly right. A good example of this practice in action is the work of minimalist brand Aurelie, founded in 2015 by designer Ryota Iwai. The ethos of Aurelie is simple, if perhaps a bit extreme. It's dedicated to using only its own unique fabrics, which are woven in Japan from premium yarn sourced from across the globe. In an industry where brands typically buy fabrics from wholesalers, this in itself might seem onerous enough. But, as is often the way in Japan, Aurelie has to tick all the boxes, meaning that it also commissions its own handmade horn buttons too. demonstrate exactly what that involves, Aurelie's sales manager, Yuko Nakamura, took Mr. Porter buying consultant Kari Oyama on a tour of the small, family-run factory in the countryside of Japan's Nara prefecture, where the buttons are made. They started off in a large warehouse filled with raw materials, woven bags of horns in a multitude of colours, shapes and sizes. So we're in their storage. We see hundred sacks around us and in each bag there um, the material of the actual horn buttons. This horn on the right hand side it's from India and then in the middle it's from Ethiopia. They have different patterns on the surface which is the characteristic to the button. This is Hiratoshi Komeda, 
the CEO of the button factory. He's showing Kauri around the different stages of production. Next is the sorting room, where cut slivers of horn are being selected and organised. So we're now in a room. We see around six women sorting out the buttons. They're looking at the gradation of the colour. They have a colour card, a light underneath the desk. The light goes through the button itself and then they'll be able to distinguish what colour it is because in the storage it's too dark to see what the actual colour is. They're looking into the colours and the size and then the thickness of each buttons and they have three boxes here and depending on the thickness and the size and the colour they put in three different boxes. The buttons made at the factory are used by a range of Japanese luxury brands but Kaori is here specifically to see the buttons being made for Aurelie. So I'm holding a button in my hand now. They are around the size of 5p and they're beige, 0.5 centimetre in thickness and it's got nice texture. So this button will be used for Valerie's men's and women's jackets and coats. This is Yuko Nakamura from Aurelie. <laughs> The reason why they use this specific button for the jacket and the coat is there are very rare bits from the horn itself and then they like the texture and how natural it looks. Yuko is pointing out something important here. That is, not all buttons are equal. When it comes to buttons made from natural materials like horn, each one will have its own unique texture and pattern, depending on which part of the horn is used. Obviously, the more specific you get, the more special and expensive the button will be. The next room is noisy, full of whirring machines that move the buttons on to the next stage of production. Carrie has shown a large machine with spinning arms that cut the pieces of horn into shape. I'm looking at this machine and they have three propellers. The propellers are made out of diamond, so it will cut through the button. The process is that you put this material of the button in this spinning machine first and then it will go down and then go to the first propeller, which makes this shape. It only makes the one side of the button, and then the next propeller, they'll make the other side of the button. There are four steps in this one machine, and apparently they can make 9,000 buttons in a day with this one machine. For like buttons that are specially made for certain brands, they have a smaller production lot. For all the reeds buttons, they're all made specially for the brand, so they're all being done by hand. What Kauri is saying here is that, while there are machines to enact each aspect of button production, 
Inside the same room, there are also several men performing the same tasks manually to fulfil more specific and smaller orders, like Aurelie's. One is in charge of cutting the horn into slices, another oversees shaping the slivers using a lathe, another polishes, and so on. For the mechanically made buttons, the next step is a machine that is intensely satisfying to watch. Here, circular pieces of shaped horn are passed through a sorting tray with thin cracks in it, a little bit like one of those 10p machines on Brighton Pier. This is to ensure that they're the correct width. Those that make the cut are picked up by a mechanical arm, which then holds them in place to allow four tiny drill bits to carve out the buttonholes. This machine in front of us, they're the machines for the buttonholes. You have to make the holes from the back of the button, not from the front. If the buttons are not right, it falls down. And then the selected buttons will go into machine in order to get the buttonholes. At the bottom, you can see the finalised button. Finally, it's time for some beautification. We're now at one of the last stages of the button making and once the buttons are made and are made into shape they are put in a machine to smoothen out the surfaces. We have five drums spinning around and every drum they have specific stones so that the button would smoothen out and it takes three hours for every button to get smoothened out. In a room at the back of the factory, off a corridor stacked with metal boxes full of buttons ready for shipping, the almost ready buttons are now transferred from one set of drums to another. As the wooden drums spin in tandem, meditatively, the buttons undergo one further enhancement. So this is the very final stage of the button making and we see a wooden drum, there are eight of them, and inside the drums we can see small bamboo pieces and these are to polish the button so that the button will be coated. Depending on the button, uh, the amount of time it takes to polish the furs. For some buttons, it can take up to three days to finalize and then come out as a final product. Finally, after hours of shaping, cutting, slicing, spinning, drilling, shining and polishing, Cowrie gets to see the final result. I'm holding a um, finished product in my hand now. The finished products are really shiny and very smooth compared to the original material button, so you can see how much care and details put into making it. I like the idea that even at the most premium end of the scale, the button is still a rather rudimentary object. Yes, it can be mass-produced in coloured plastic, with the help of a variety of impressive machines, but it can equally be produced by hand, with materials like wood and horn and nut, the same resources that we would have relied upon thousands of years ago. In fact, it's rather primitive, 
In a world where things like zips and magnetised poppers and various other ingenious fastenings are readily available, it's not at all clear why we're still so attached to the button. But if I were to hazard a guess, I'd say it's to do with tactile memory. The truth is that the button is not just a pleasing object, but a symbol of clothing shaped by human hands for the use of human hands. Even the round, indented shape of a button seems perfectly formed to accommodate the curved tips of our fingers and thumbs. In an age where so much of what we experience is virtual, there's something weighty and rather reassuring about that. You've been listening to The Details, a podcast from Mr. Porter, produced by Chalk and Blade. The producer was Eva Krishiak. The assistant producer was Hester Kant. The executive producer was Ruth Barnes. Mixed by Chris Wood. Music by Adam Lieber and Julian Guidetti. To listen to all six episodes, search for the Mr. Porter podcast on your podcast provider, or visit our site, at mrporter.com forward slash the details. To hear more from Mr. Porter, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Mr. Porter Live. Or check out our online magazine, The Journal, at mrporter.com forward slash journal. 